Welcome, I'm Max Horowitz, producer and host of Penderecki in Memoriam podcast. This podcast is created by Anna Pezhanowska and presented by Polish Cultural Institute, New York. Penderecki in Memoriam podcast unveils a multifaceted portrait of Krzysztof Penderecki with commentary from musicians, colleagues, radio programmers, and writers who lend insight and memories of Poland's greatest modern composer. This podcast is part of Penderecki in Memoriam Worldwide Project, honoring the life and legacy of the great composer. Thank you to project partners Dukes, Naxos, Ludwig von Beethoven Association, and Schott EAM for sharing Christoph Penderecki's music with the world. We appreciate you joining us in honoring and celebrating Penderecki's life and legacy. In 2018, ahead of the composer's 85th birthday, Deutsche Grammophon released a double album of works for the violin by Christoph Penderecki, celebrating his longtime collaboration with Anna-Sophie Mutter. Homage à Penderecki features a number of the composer's works for violin, violin and piano, and violin and orchestra, including La Folia, Duo Concertante, Sonata No. 2, and the world premiere recording of the second violin concerto, Anna-Sophie Mutter is here with us to discuss this recording and her 30-year relationship with the great maestro. Hello, Anna-Sophie. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great, great pleasure, Max. I mean, for Maestro Penderecki, who actually really changed my life, my perception of music, my knowledge. He opened so many doors intellectually, but also emotionally in my life that I couldn't be more grateful to this man and all the memorable pieces he has written for me. But he left for generations to wrestle with and fall in love with. (laughs) Well, you know, if anyone can be said to have Penderecki's music in their blood, it's you. What was it like working with Penderecki, and what have you learned over the years working with him? I got to know his music in the 80s. Actually, I was present at a partial world premiere of the Polish Requiem. I mean, he composed it within a time frame of four years. I think it was actually in uh, 1980 when I got to hear part of that masterpiece, and I was deeply shattered and moved because his music, his understanding of the human voice and its sheer limitless capacity to express historic moments, liturgic moments, as well as everything we as human beings are capable of going through emotionally and particularly the Lacrimosa, which I then later also got to know more intimately, is in my opinion one of the great masterpieces. his intense treatment of the human voice, which much of that you can find in the way he writes for violin. Of course, the chromaticism he is using in all his pieces. Even in the early ones, you know, once I got to know the Polish Requiem, I of course looked into the earlier works like Anna Klasis. 
this fabulous piece, I think that basically opened his career as a world-renowned composer in 1960. That's from over 40 strings and an array of percussion instruments. That's very much still influenced by Webern and Boulez and hair-risingly what you would consider alien and daring and provocative and in search of a new world of music, of architecture, of structure. much broader sense of what music can express and that I think is what I have always loved and admired in Krzysztof's life as a composer whom I once kind of compared to Picasso just because Picasso seems to be one of the very few uh, painters who has so drastically so often changed the style in which he painted cubistic and then the blue face and the pink face and you know if you look at the dream of Jakub uh, from the 70s once again Anaclasis <laughs> And you move on to, let's say, La Folia, <laughs> the solo piece on this Baroque theme for violin. Clearly, this is the same man, but in a totally different world of musical context. And that is something I admire very much because he was on the search for the eternally timeless musical language. I'm not sure if he found it, but he definitely was willing and able to break with what he had done at an earlier stage and maybe move into something which we would consider more romantic. I don't know why we tend to put labels on music. It kind of really takes the magical quality of this language away by translating it constantly in a language. And my problem then is that English is a foreign language, obviously, to me, which makes it even more frustrating for you to have to listen to and myself not finding adequate words, which I, by the way, wouldn't find in German either, to translate what Penderecki's music really stands for. Because by translation, we do miss much of the mystery and of the miracle. So the comparison to Picasso in the sensuousness of the music and the existential depth along with the complexity and the multifaceted nature of the diversity. And also the architecture, the whole concept of how to be narrative in a context which if we go back to Anna Klasis... definitely, of course, much removed from La Folia, which is written in a Baroque style, which is a variation over this Baroque theme, and which very much tries to tie the knot between the past and the future. 
It's not standing in the middle. It's clearly reference to the past. And his reference to Bach is very apparent, particularly in his choral works. And so it is also very apparent in La Folia. And that is, for me, such a challenge because there is architecture, but there is also extremely daring technical and emotional content in his music, which goes way above what we think we are allowed to express when playing Bach, for example. Now, your relationship with Penderecki, I believe, goes back to when you were 12 years old, playing Beethoven under Karian. I'm not aware, actually, that I met him in that period. He might have been at a rehearsal or concert. I'm not quite certain if that is correct. The official meeting time was in the 80s during the premiere of the Polish Requiem, but also during a period in which I extensively traveled to Switzerland to Paul Sacher. I grew up at the foot of the Black Forest, so very close to the Swiss border. And my relationship with Switzerland is very intense because I studied there at the conservatory close to Zurich and my teacher Aida Stucki was turning 100. She was Swiss. So Paul Sacher, we all remember, I think, for the glorious commissions he gave, let's say Strauss, uh, Metamorphosen for example, but also of course living composers like Penretsky, Ludoslavsky, Moray, whom I or Dudieu and all these great masters, all these great geniuses lived at one time or the other um, in the estate or at the estate of Paul Sacher in Basel and that's where in the 80s I was surrounded by the most fascinating composers you could possibly meet and also sculptures and painters. That was definitely the moment where not only did I meet Penderecki, the composer, but also Penderecki, the man. And it took me almost 10 years until I dared to ask Paul Sacher if we would move forward to give a commission to Krzysztof Penderecki to write a violin concerto for me which he then did and which was, as we know, premiered in 1995. 
Penderecki's creative process was tireless and very demanding. He has said about his composing, I like traveling unchartered pathways, otherwise nothing comes out. I start in the middle before moving to the right or to the left. To have to get back on course, I continue to compose until it becomes clear to me that I could do really much better. Then I start at the beginning. It seems like he put great demands on himself. Did you find him to be that way or self-critical of his work? Yes, definitely. First of all, fascinating is that Penderecki always wrote over something. He apparently never really wrote on a white sheet of paper. There was always something on it, either other music or scribbling of himself. So maybe that helped him to avoid the famous writer's block when looking at a, an untouched piece of paper. Once he was finished, he would, to my knowledge, not go back to revise the piece. How often the revision might have taken place before he handed it over to, let's say, the orchestra or the one musician who would then perform the piece, I really can't answer. Yes, he was extremely self-critical, but he also was able to let go of a piece, which some composers wrestle a lifelong. Think of Brahms, you know, how much he destroyed because he was constantly unhappy with what he wrote. And Penderecki, after soul-searching, was able to let go and move on and maybe learn from that very experience, that's clear, and try anew. And definitely as a violinist, as a fabulous violinist himself, he pushed the capacity of us violinists and what we can and shall do with the instrument to a totally new level. I mean, La Folia is one of the most difficult pieces I have ever played in my life. Technically extremely demanding and yet in a wonderfully restrained architecture of the past with Paganini in the middle and the next generation of smoking hands in front. The DG recording, homage à Penderecki, touching tribute, really honors your long friendship. Were all of the pieces on that recording dedicated to you? Yes. Also the Dua Concertant, although this, of course, was clearly written and commissioned for, not necessarily myself, but for Roman Patkolo, this fabulous bass player who, together with another generation of great double bass player, has really led into a renaissance of that wonderful orchestral instrument, which also can dazzle and leave you speechless. Again, in another reference to the past, the Italian title really leads into what the piece is. It's a Botticini-like, but of course in Penderecki's language, virtuosic piece of about six minutes, this duo concertant, and with the double bass being tuned in solistic tunes, the gap between the registers of these two instruments is slightly closed, and it's a wonderful way to display an enlarged string instrument, the between the double bass and the violin is capable of displaying in a dialogue.
a duo contretemps. It's a very energetic piece, but almost has a nonchalant feel about it. Definitely, yes. It's a pièce d'occasion. It's a showpiece in a very positive sense. It was intended to be that. I clearly was dreaming of a piece which would also display the sheer superhuman possibilities Roman Patkolo is able to display. He really is the Paganini uh, on the bass. And uh, Penderecki, with great joy, um, it seems, has written something which does precisely that. It's a reference to a virtuoso. Now, the album rolls out the pieces in sort of reverse chronological order to when they were written. We didn't do that on purpose. We were looking at the pieces and we tried to find a narrative which, like in a concert, would make sense for the listener. So it has nothing to do with what was composed when. Clear was that it had to end with metamorphosen because in the last moment of metamorphosen, where the violin at the very end of this over half an hour long discourse plays almost with only a quartet of the orchestra members left and kind of disappears into another stratospheric existence. After that, you cannot play or hear anything else. The ending of Metamorphosen is very much alike, I would say, Alban Berg's wonderful, hopeful look into heaven. Then we get to the large-scale works and the emotional five-movement second violin sonata where you're joined by your good friend Lambert Orcus. This is such a complex piece and has so many musical ideas sounding at the same time. I know you've discussed having to make choices on which themes to pursue because you can't pursue all of them at the same time. Yeah, that's a very good point. This is one of the pieces Lambert and I have literally struggled the longest with. I mean, not that we don't struggle with something as genius as the Schubert fantasy, but the story of the world premiere of the second sonata is maybe not the most ideal. We were supposed to play it during my festival, which took place in New York, Frankfurt and Stuttgart and London, called Back to the Future. 
And I think it consisted of five evenings. And I tried to showcase at least one piece per decade of the 20th century of important violin pieces. So I played every evening for three evenings, three violin concerti, including obviously pieces which were written for me. And we were in one of the chamber music programs, also supposed to premiere the second sonata. But Krzysztof very often was composing and composing and writing, 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 writing. And eventually, I think he was finished like literally only weeks before the premiere date. But then two things happened. First of all, we didn't perform the piece as planned because there was just not enough time to do justice to it. So I don't know what we played, but we had to replace it with another piece for violin and piano. The funny but also tragic thing happened that a German critic who supposedly traveled from Europe to America to be present at the world premiere, which didn't take place, wrote a very bad critic about that world premiere of a piece which hadn't been performed. So that is funny, but it's also tragic because it shows that you cannot always take serious what is going to be written about a piece of music. The more serious note of this story is that we did the premiere then in spring of 2000, but I think not very well. This piece is so incredibly dense in material. And as you mentioned, Max, there are so many interesting musical thoughts spinning around, at least two or three between the violin and the piano at the same instant, that it took us, Lambert and myself, separate, literally years, not years without end, because mind you, we had other things to do than only study that sonata. But, you know, there would be years. We knew that we would, for uh, Penderecki's big, birthday, prepare it properly and go basically on a world tour with the second sonata. So almost two years before that happened, we started preparing separately and then we would play recitals of other programs, Mozart sonatas, Ravel, whatever. And we would, after these recitals, either stay in the hall and dedicate a few hours to going through the piece. And I remember for many days in the early process of trying to bring this puzzle together, I would, after like 30 or 50 minutes, either I would laugh hysterically because it was so complex and crazy that I needed fresh air, I needed distance, I needed to recollect and refocus my attention and more discussions going on. So the second sonata, as it is incredibly complex, and of course, we find extreme melodic chromaticism, of course, and totally unexpected harmonical ideas. But like all the other pieces Penderecki has written in that time frame of the 80s or 90s, to be more precise, until the most recent piece, which is La Folia, there is an wonderful underlining structure, unavoidable logic and architecture. And that is what makes him such a genius, because this marriage between form, architecture and expressivity couldn't be more masterful. Nothing is written by accident. Nothing is just sheer beauty or great effect. Everything has a purpose. Everything has the leading narrative. Everything is there for a purpose and there is a development and you will find a recap and you will find motives and themes you have heard in the Pizzicati at the very beginning in the piano later on. It is a piece of genius, but it has taken Lambert and myself a long, long time to... But then I tell you, it's some of the greatest moments in our life to play this piece and to play it in front of Krzysztof and see his happy face. That was one of the better moments in Lambert's in my life. <laughs> 
would you say about his evolution, the more radical music coming earlier and then later in his life, a more romantic sound world, more concerto, sonata forms? I think really his core oeuvre are the sacred and the liturgic musical pieces, the choir and orchestra works, because chamber music only popped up occasionally, but it was not really his main voice. I see his main voice really in the choir and big oratoriums. And also the, oh my God, that is one of my favorite pieces is the Stabat Mater for mixed choir, pre-mixed choirs, also from the 60s, a cappella. That is to die for. about the progression from being influenced by Webern and Boulez and then turning his back to that more experimental way of writing. It was a decision he made. I respect that decision and great admiration and respect for everything he wrote. And yes, probably <laughs> my connection with the music he wrote after the 80s is a more immediate one, but that has nothing to do with a judgment about quality. On a personal note, I wanted to ask you about his passion for collecting and cultivating trees. Yeah, I, I can only say I also love trees, but I don't know how many thousands of different species of trees he has. His relationship with nature was something very magical. And as we all know, he loved his labyrinth and very often would refer to his composing being a labyrinth uh, in which he always tries to find the way out, maybe the perfect ending. I guess as music comes out of silence and nature itself is the best composer, think of the birds. I mean, bird songs, the sounds of leaves in the air. He definitely was a man who loved silence. And I think he also enjoyed solitude, but solitude in and with nature. And that is, of course, a totally different setting. Penderecki has said, I doubt if you really understand your own music, you write and write, but only when you hear Anna Sophie playing the music do you really understand it. It was a great privilege to travel with Krzysztof to China on the occasion of his birthday. I think it's two years ago to witness a young audience celebrate him as a kind of contemporary Beethoven from Europe. And the immediacy of understanding of his music and the passionate response of that young generation in a part of the world where his music has not been uh, heard and, and uh, revered for decades. That immediate connection with a young generation, that must have given him great joy. It gave me great joy to see how much he has been loved and will be forever loved around the globe.
that is a memory I will always cherish. And I have always his music I can turn to. Yes, I am heartbroken that I cannot talk to him anymore. I'm very sad for his wonderful wife and the children. And of course, many of us musicians who will not be able to work with him anymore. I had dearly hoped he would finish the Concerto Grosso. But the wonderful thing in music is that whenever I play his pieces, particularly the ones he wrote for me, it's like being in a living, constant, everlasting dialogue with Krzysztof. And by doing this, he will forever, in my generation, stay alive. And for many generations to come, it's obvious that he is immortal. And I'm very happy for him. <laughs> Anna-Sophie Mutter, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to discuss one of the greatest composers of our time, Christoph Penderecki. Thank you very much for your time, Max. Great honor. This is Max Horowitz, producer and host of Penderecki In Memoriam podcast, created by Anna Pejanowska and presented by Polish Cultural Institute New York. Thank you to project partners Dukes, Naxos, Ludwig von Beethoven Association, and Schott EAM for sharing Christoph Penderecki's music with the world. We appreciate you joining us in honoring and celebrating Penderecki's life and legacy. Make sure to subscribe.